All right. Welcome back to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I am Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapist, your mechanic. Welcome back, drivers, to the Relationship Road Trip. Today's quote is by Tom Glenn. Post-traumatic stress injury isn't a disease. It's a wound to the soul that never heals. Last week, friend of the show, Blaise Harris, joined us to talk about mental health stigmas in different cultures. We're wrapping up our arc on stigma in mental health this week with a discussion about the military and mental health. And we are joined by our expert, Don, who is a (laughs) veteran himself. Yep. 101st Airborne. That's correct. I know something. (laughs) There are particular mental health injuries that come with serving in our armed forces. There has been significant stigma in the military for seeking out mental health services. This is getting better and is still difficult. There is hope and we will cover some of the recent changes in the military to address mental health injury prevention and treatment. So to start us off, Don, what is the history of mental health in the military? Interestingly enough, it goes way back. So So when you were in the military. No, it was after my service. But so it goes way back to Homer's Iliad, where he describes the emotional and psychological effects of war on Achilles and several of the other heroes of the Trojan War. And then in 23 BC, the ancient Roman poet Horace also describes the emotional toll of warfare. As long back as, as we really have records, we've been talking about the, the psychological, emotional, moral effect of war on human beings. It's not new, and we're still not handling it very well. The, the Napoleonic troops, because they couldn't be seen as being somehow sick or having a problem or even wounded this way, when they were stuck in thinking about battles, so had a hard time being in the present, they were said to be nostalgic for the glory of war. Yeah, war is like often glorified in history. Yes. Um, And in cultures. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a a long trend of, I guess, usually young men aspiring to be warriors and and aspiring for that glory. I think there's even a maybe a story trope of older men telling younger men war is not glorious. You shouldn't aspire to this thing. But then aspiring to it anyway. Yeah, there's all the the pressures for it about uh, identifying with your country or with uh, a position and feeling like it is worth dying for. Mm -hmm. Well, and if we're looking all the way back to Napoleonic troops and ancient Rome, more often than not, there wasn't a choice. And there's not a lot of choice now, but hey. Fair. It's not quite as intense as the Romans, I don't think, where you're trained from when you're, what, six? (laughs) Well, in in Greece, that same thing. So the Spartans were trained from birth. The Spartans even trained their women to be fighters, even though they didn't go off to war. So in any case, this whole idea of the emotional and psychological effects moving forward into the Civil War in the United States, troops were said to have suffered from war neurosis. Prior to World War I, it was generally thought that this was a reaction to combat, and it was a personal weakness and viewed with disdain. So if you couldn't handle war, somehow you were not a man. 
And uh, it plays right into what we talked about, stigma on mental health for men. Blaze was talking to us about, right, suck it up. Don't be a baby. Right. Yeah. If you continued to suffer from this in World War One, when you came home, then they put you away into a convalescent home. And the quality of that home was dictated not by the fact that you served our country, but about how much money you had or what race you were. And that was stunning. Now, of course, in World War One, there were not as many. They didn't accept African-Americans into the U.S. military that would not come into World War Two in any great numbers. And that was true also in the Civil War, right? The North waited a very long time before they allowed freed black men to join the military. Uh, but they did allow there were black they did allow in, them in the Civil War. So then they stopped allowing them in World War One. I? I didn't actually know that. I'm not a war historian. Surprise. It's not stopped. It's limited roles. And that was the same in the Civil War. It was limited roles. It wasn't until late in the war that they allowed a combat unit to be created. And then they didn't fund the unit. They didn't pay them the same. They didn't give them equipment. Just lots of different things. But we're really talking about shell shock. That's what happens now. In World War One. you come back, they throw you in a convalescent home. The quality of it depended on on your station, as they called it. The other part is, is that medicine didn't really know what to do with these folks who came back and they were clearly symptomatic, but they had zero physical wounds. So the medical units shipped them back to the front lines, untreated because they didn't know how to treat them. All of this came to a head in World War I when a guy named Dr. Charles Myers, who was a captain, defined the term shell shock and he connected it to hysteria. And hysteria at that point was a diagnosis only given to women. That's since right. the term Only it, women can be hysterical. Well, because it means me. a wandering uterus. I know. I've got a crazy uterus. It goes crazy places. And Makes yeah. me crazy. So essentially, Dr. Myers was calling these people who had this set of symptoms girly men. They were inadequate in some way as men, and that's why they were suffering. In the trenches, troops called it the 100-yard stare, where a troop stopped being in the present and was somewhere trapped in their mind, generally in the past. So shell shock goes on through World War II in Korea, and they begin to realize that it happens for folks even though artillery rounds are not part of it. But they still see it as not an injury. So you can't get a pension, you can't get a retirement for being injured in the military for this diagnosis. And that's a big deal because this is a fair number of people. So they were locked out of any kind of pension. So in World War II through Korea, it got renamed combat fatigue as an understanding that is a form of exhaustion. And it was physical, emotional, and moral. And combat presents all of those. Everybody recognizes the physical stuff, trying to crawl up a hill and not die and that kind of thing. But there is a, an emotional impact of seeing your friend get shot. We're seeing even somebody you don't know get shot or worse yet for many of the veterans that I've worked with killing someone else and the cost that that takes on your soul when you take someone else's life. We haven't really dealt with those kinds of injuries very well. The redefinition, though, of shell shock to combat fatigue did allow more service men and women to seek care when returning home. There's still a major stigma, though, because you don't have a real wound. So are you malingering, which is the number one other diagnosis, which means faking or lying about all of this? It's stunning to me, though. And I think I've stunned the two of you because you've been so silent. Well, I mean, a lot of this is just informational and 
to an extent, throwing sassy comments in here doesn't help much. I didn't have any questions. I was enjoying the history. I also got stuck on thinking about you don't really talk about your time when you were deployed and the way you were talking about the moral challenges of shooting someone. I was like, did you ever shoot anybody? No, I did not. Although there was a point when we jumped forward and it was as the, the air combat was happening where they were carpet bombing and preparing where we would go into. And when we jumped forward and I dug a foxhole and we got ready for what we were supposed to do, even though I'm a psychologist, everybody had to do it. I was standing there one night listening to planes go over, holding my rifle and thinking about what happens if I have to defend my patients? Because that's my role. I would never be in an attack unit, but I would be taking care of folks who couldn't take care of themselves. And what if I had to do that? And if I had to kill someone, what would that mean? Having spent more than a decade of my life dedicated to healing people, would I be ready to kill someone in order to protect the people I was ordered to protect? Luckily, I never had that situation, but that's not true for many, many people who are in the military. And from Vietnam forward, well, actually from Korea forward, this was not so much true in World War II, but from Korea forward, combatants, I would imagine on both sides, but it's always the other side that we hear about, would use civilians and children to to block fire from, from our side. So what would it be like if you accidentally killed a kid in the crossfire or any non-combatant, man, woman, old, young, doesn't really matter. That affects you. It, that's a moral wound. If we move into the 1960s, Vietnam happens, and this war had the highest number of shell shock cases to date, so much so that they created a new term for it called Vietnam syndrome or post-Vietnam syndrome. And it was particularly coined that way, that term, to pull it away from the idea that ordnance had to be involved, that you had to be shot at, or there had to be artillery or that kind of fear. And more the, I'm seeing really crazy stuff, unbelievably crazy stuff. And it really is here during the Vietnam era and really post the Vietnam era that there's a recognition of the moral, spiritual, and emotional wounds that war leaves. And it's simply by witnessing the carnage of combat, not even engaging in it, just witnessing it, dealing with the aftermath, coming into a a town or a village after the war has gone through it and seeing the devastation or even just walking through any landscape that has been bombed. It's it's different. It is different. Traumatizing. Yeah. Traumatizing. Yeah. After Vietnam, folks who were struggling with what would soon be known as post-traumatic stress disorder got together. The veterans got together and said, we fought for our country. Now we're fighting for ourselves. And they started to demand recognition of this injury and ask for help. And when it was accepted and put into the DSM-3, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health Folks, it really served two purposes. Number one, it allowed service members to get treatment through the VA for this combat-related injury. And two, it started to reduce the harsh image of people who suffer from the disorder. There was kind of an understanding if someone shot your leg off and you needed to go around on crutches or have a prosthetic, people were sympathetic to you. This is the same thing. You just can't see the wound. And for people who don't keep up with the DSM, we are now on DSM 5, five. 6, 5. We're officially on DSM 5. So this has continued to be a part of the DSM and 
the language associated in the medical terminology. And the definition of it has changed some as far as criteria to meet. And it also now is not, while most people associate PTSD with military individuals, it expands to more than just that. So victims of assaults, individuals who are in gangs and are witnessing urban war, essentially. Rape victims. First responders, too. Yeah. Please First responders. Domestic abuse. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Anything, the, the commonality here is when one human perpetrates harm on another human, you're much more likely to have this result. If you have a natural disaster where people die and you actually see dead bodies, it is rarer to have the PTSD response. Because there's an understanding of, oh, this is nature. This is how this goes. But somehow when it's person on person, it seems to change the nature of the effect on human beings. Well, and it's interesting. I think a lot of the emotional trauma and PTSD with environmental traumas I've seen with individuals who made an attempt to rescue someone and was unsuccessful. So it's still that human connection that you're seeing as far as the the moral and emotional connection to it. So the last thing on all of this is that now with the war in Afghanistan and in Iraq, <laughs> traumatic brain injury has been added to that. Traumatic brain injury had been there all along, but we didn't really understand it very well. And is now that more we of a physical Physical That's thing? more of a physical, but uh, concussion can create this. So right. okay. when an artillery round goes off or a bomb explodes and you're within the concussive range, depending on how it strikes your, your head, <laughs> it can make a big difference. Yeah. So that kind of brings us to the present. So what is the military doing now in terms of identifying and treating this kind of injury? So the military has actually become more nuanced, right? They're, they're actually trying to address this. They're looking at how do we help in the transition, leaving a combat zone and returning home. This has been particularly stressful since Desert Storm through Iraqi freedom and then through enduring freedom, which is the Afghanistan uh, conflict, because those have had troops that have had multiple deployments. So they've gone out and they've come back and they've gone out and they've come back. And those cycles have emotional and psychological impacts on the soldiers and their families. We've talked about this before on the show of what happens when you reintegrate into a family and the roles have to shift again. That creates psychological and emotional challenges. And it depends on what you've seen. So if that soldier has also been in high levels of combat and city-based combat is terrible for crossfires that kill civilians and kids and all the rest of that. And that has a huge impact huge impact. Particularly, it's for anyone, but there are certain situations where it's hard if you're the survivor. Like if you're the leader and some of your troops get killed, that is painful, super painful for some of those leaders who struggle with what should I have done differently to have saved that life, even if nothing could have been done differently. So there are more programs in the military now uh, to identifying trained troops and families about navigating the deployment process and the reintegration process. That's one super positive thing. And I saw that beginning in Desert Storm way back when. The U.S. military is also investing in training for emotional resiliency. The military has done physical resiliency forever. 
And now they're also adding to that emotional resiliency. So teaching emotional intelligence, teaching tools for identifying your emotions and managing them and teaching tools to help you help someone else manage their emotions, which is those are de-escalation techniques when someone is in an escalated state. So they're training to do these things with the hope that if you have more of these tools, then when you experience combat, you can process your experience and reduce the lingering effects that you're more likely to reach out and talk to somebody rather than keep it inside. And one of the things we do know is that if you try and do this all by yourself, you suffer worse. You need other people to help you. Kim, you have anything to add to that? You made a face at one point. I'm enjoying all this information. I don't have a lot of questions, unfortunately. Um, Well, and a lot of it is pretty straightforward. We have finally identified that this is a significant problem that our military is experiencing. And there needs to be more things done about it. I know when I was an undergrad, I was doing research on using couples therapy to work with that transition back and just having the dyad with an external source to be able to create that boundary and rebuild the trust between the two people. But yeah, there's a lot of work to be done is really the bottom line of that. Do we have an idea how these programs that the military has implemented since desert storms about 30 years ago, right? Yes. Isn't that amazing? It's been roughly three decades since this more modern trend towards identifying and trying to prevent some of these illnesses caused by combat. Do we have an idea how those programs are helping, if they're helping? It's really too early to tell in that regard. 30 years? 30 years ain't enough? Think about how long it takes to create the program and then implement it. And then the follow-up aspect of this. I think one of the more sad statistics we have out here is that the suicide rate for veterans is 1.5 times higher than non-veterans. And that's research from 2019. So again, looking at that follow-up to be able to see how effective these programs are, that statistic speaks for itself as far as if this program is working. One of my jobs when I was at Desert Storm was doing the postmortem, essentially, the psychological autopsy is what it was called, of folks who committed suicide, going and interviewing everyone that had any interaction with them, trying to understand them in those last moments to try and figure out if there's anything that we could do to do that. As far as I know, psychological autopsies are still done on all active duty soldiers who commit suicide. 2020 saw an increase in active duty suicides by 30% over 2019. They still don't understand why, but that's a pretty massive jump. And 2020 was a rough year for everyone. So I wonder how much that also impacted because there was a lot of isolation involved in 2020. And, you know, we're talking about needing others to be able to move through these things and process it. And if you're coming back with symptoms of PTSD and then don't have good access to the services, and even just face-to-face experiences. There's so much research on the importance of community for people and being in the physical proximity to others. I was wondering about that statistic. If I, I have to assume that 2020 as a year, the pandemic is a huge factor in that. I would be interested to see the rate in non veterans as well to see if both went up. I would guess that both went up significantly and proportionally. And I also think it's important to 
slide in here, insurance and access to care. Military is provided with insurance as part of their service. And being able to use that is great. Finding people who are in network with it can be more challenging. So it's a limiter, but also a supporter in getting the mental and physical support that they need. And if you're interested in looking at more resources, NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, if you use their search bar and look for veterans and active duty, the resources will populate. And I also want to remind everyone that PTSD and these experiences are not just in relationship to the military. It's a wound to the mind and to the soul. And after listening to all you said and reflecting on it, Don, it seems as if the human mind and soul knows that committing violence against another human in any situation, not just combat, is emotionally and morally damaging. Even just witnessing it changes you forever. Today, we covered the history of PTSD in the military And we also talked about new programs and techniques the military is using to identify, treat, and hopefully prevent mental illness caused by war. Unfortunately, there's still a high rate of suicide among veterans, and it's hard to tell if the programs are working yet. Hopefully, we will continue to improve support and care for veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and other combat-related mental illnesses. Thank you for joining us this week on the Relationship Road Trip. We'll be starting a new arc next week, so don't forget to tune in. Until then, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to The Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Mm